Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello, I'm your host, Naja, and in this podcast we try to shed lights on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, we'll be covering the subject of graphic romance, as well as the images that accompany those stories. So let's begin. There has been a resurgence of interest for the Gothic in the last years, especially for Gothic romance and Gothic horror. I can mention the movie Crimson Peak in 2015 by the director Guillermo del Toro as a mainstream movie that really is a Gothic romance. In that movie, del Toro really utilized the elements of what is a Gothic romance to create an intricate story of love betrayal, and creepy houses, and of course, ghosts. Gothic romance used to be the term used for Gothic literature in its entirety, even though it now seems to distinguish a particular niche subgenre of the Gothic. The Gothic can intersect many genres, from horror to sci-fi to even western. I remember reading in a Tor.com article that I will link below in the show notes that Gothic is a very decorative genre, and I have to agree. It's a very aesthetic and atmospheric genre. Of course, there are some plot points that are very particular to the Gothic, but more often than not, it's an added ambiance, an added mystery and darkness. The plot can be formulaic or not, but there needs to be some hidden secrets, maybe an isolated mansion on the top of a hill. This mansion might or might not be haunted. Maybe everyone has secrets and weird things happen at night. You feel so terribly alone. You try to flee in your white nightgown through the moors, but something dark chases you. This is Gothic romance. First of all, before we go deeper, I think it's a good idea to just maybe go over quickly the history of the genre during the late 18th century and the 19th century before we start talking about the visual aspect of it. The first Gothic story is generally attributed to Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto in 1764. This story has the first seeds of what would soon be known as Gothic romance. Walpole was a rich eccentric man who loved to go against what was considered the norm during his time, even though it was really just a superficial way to be countercultural. Walpole was a rich white man, and he loved the comfort that this afforded him. He just had the privilege to be as original as he wished to be. The second half of the 18th century in which this novel was written had classicism being the main aesthetic of the era, Rigid, rational, and symmetric, following the enlightenment and the rise of reason, this aesthetic wasn't one for illogical displays of originality and emotions. I am really sorry for going so far back to tell you about Gothic romance, a genre that we now mostly associate with the 19th century, but I do think it's still important to put things back in their cultural and historical context 
Horace Walpole was living during this era, and being a rich idol aristocrat with no real responsibilities to speak of, he spent his life pursuing his interests to the fullest. His money and free time really enabled him to dedicate himself to whatever he wished to. For example, the house he built and lived in for the bitter part of his life was Strawberry Hill, a monstrous example of Gothic-inspired architecture. He also was one of the first to draw with this kind of Gothic-inspired architecture at the time. Strawberry Hill, as he called this enormous mansion of his, is a huge white building with Gothic architectural elements. The Gothic elements are not real and more pastiche and decorative. The interior is a lavish mix of Gothic and classical design with various themed rooms across the house. It's not yet the true Gothic revival architectural style, but it is the humble beginnings of the interest to a more dramatic genre of architecture and, of course, literature. Nevertheless, the castle of Otranto is the precursor to a genre that goes most engouement in the 19th century. And this book did shape the genre until this day. I have read The Castle of Otranto, and while I don't know if I can safely advance that the book is good, I think I can still say that it's a very overly dramatic and intense book. There's a desire to go back to the Middle Ages, to the romance of those wilder times, to evoke grand emotions and create a mystical atmosphere between literally giant monstrous ghosts and secret passages, kidnappings and helpless heroines. Walpole somehow manages to start a genre that will stick around for a very long time. Anne Ratcliffe published her books after Walpole, and was arguably just as much of an influence on the genre as he was, if not more. Her books, especially The Mystery of Adolfo as well as Romance of the Forest, really kick-started the genre. But also, her books have a clear link with Romanticism and the desire to go back to an era of emotions, of the wilderness of the Middle Ages. It was a very romanticized view of the past that the writers and artists of the Romantic era imagined and depicted in their art. Tempestuous emotions, and more importantly, terror. I think it's important to make the distinction between terror and horror in art just to make sure that everyone here is on the same page when I will use those terms. Horror is mostly from uses of gore and scary things happening. Meanwhile, terror is more insidious and subtle. Anne Ratcliffe also introduces the concept of the supernatural explained in her writings. Her stories are full of strange and weird happenings that all end up having a very rational explanation, no matter how somber that explanation might be. She was one of the first ones to use this technique in Gothic stories, and she shaped a lot of how Gothic was going to be and created this dichotomy between the supernatural explained and unexplained. Going forward, Gothic literature would forever be shaped by her influence, I also want to mention that Radcliffe was one of the few Gothic authors of her era that was taken seriously and as someone worthy of consideration. The whole genre was not taken very seriously at all, in fact. The Gothic romance genre was considered to be mindless mass fiction, with little to no intellectual appeal. 
Nonetheless, the doubt it would continue to grow in popularity during the late 18th century and the 19th century. This genre comes to be at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, which is the height of classicism style in art and architecture mainly, and with it the beginning of the reactionary artistic movement of Romanticism. Classicism was felt by certain people to be cold, rigid, too much taken by order to care about human emotions, about the violent power of nature. The Gothic revival will, in a way, be the very extreme version of Romanticism, of violent emotions and deep secrets and longings and shameful desires. One of the main points of the Romantic movement was a look to the past, to the years of lore, to the stories of King Arthur. Before this period, the word Gothic was a term mostly used to talk about God buildings, so it was really an architectural term to describe a very specific type of architecture. But with the throwback of sorts that came with the Romantic era and Edmund Burke's theory of the sublime, the meaning of the world did evolve to mean what we understand now today when we talk about Gothic. Since I'm mentioning the sublime, which is a cornerstone of the Romantic artistic movement, I think I should at least explain it a bit, in case you're not familiar with the concept of the sublime. Nature is terror. Bird argues that nature is wild and dangerous and terrifying, and that's what makes it beautiful. The sublime is the aesthetic of terror, of those feelings that hit you when you are faced with something that is so wild and terrifying that you are in awe and scared at the same time. Instead of light and clear paintings, the artwork inspired by these philosophies are dark, full of shadows and the wrath of the elements that are in full display. A person seems small compared to the vast and powerful nature. It's not hard to understand why this philosophy that Bert developed in the later half of the 18th century had such an impact on Gothic and Romanticism. The genre then exploded during the late years of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. The popularity of the genre with a very specific demographic, let's say, young girls and women, made it so that the genre was often considered low-class, I think that now that we have established the history of the beginnings of the Gothic romance, we can go to the visual side of it, but it's really important to briefly talk about the history of the culture, of print, and the visual culture as it relates to book illustration specifically. What we have to understand here is that from the second half of the 18th century and onward, starts a really fast-paced growth when it comes to communication and media. The betterment of printed technique made it just more widely available to the masses and to mass consumption. There has been a steadily growing amount of media and documents that have been created since the 18th century, whether books, prints, newspapers, magazines. And since the beginning of the digital age, that number skyrocketed even more once we introduced all the different types of electronic documents that exist. The 19th century in particular really has set the groundwork for the age of mass media as we know it today. It was a period of extreme growth for the publishing industry and the book in general. With an increased literacy, the technological growth of printing as a medium, and capitalists noticing just how much money could be made from books, 
books started being published in ever-growing numbers during the 19th century. During that time, books were more often than not illustrated at the beginning of each chapter, as well as throughout to enhance the reading experience. The late 19th century and early 20th was an era that was called the golden age of illustration, because a lot of artists earned their lives with book, magazine, and newspapers illustrations, a lot of them being women as well, since the illustration world was a bit less closed up than the elite world of the fine arts which made it easier for them to enter that specific market. I just want to say here that it's not that women were never admitted in the world of higher fine art, just that it was more difficult and mostly reserved to a certain kind of woman, who had connection and were financially comfortable. I also want to talk about the fact that illustration, in general, and everything that has to do with the world of print, is generally considered to be low art compared to the world of fine art, the main reason being that print culture was something that was accessible and popular with the general population. A lot of other factors influenced the rise of the media culture and of print during the late 18th century and 19th century as well, such as technological advances, urbanization, and increased literacy, and also just a working class with more disposable income. So now let's talk about the printing culture in the 19th century. For example, the illustrated press and newspapers. During that era, a new culture of press got created. The newspapers of the time were generally illustrated to provide both entertainment and information on the current events. Newspapers such as the Illustrated London, Harper's Weekly, and even more, are competing to gain the attention of the readers which made it so that the front pages were getting more and more sensational as time went by. One of the other particularities of the press of the time that I think is worth touching on is the serialized stories that were updated daily or weekly and were also heavily illustrated. Authors were often writing in this serialized format and then published subsequently as a novel, which is why I think we see a lot of really long-winded books coming out of this era. I mean, <laughs> if I was paid by the word to write something every week, I too would make sure that it would take a long time before I'm done writing the story. <laughs> and also, we have the illustrated book. I think there's a level of intertextuality and dialogue between the text and the images that we can't deny. While you can simply appreciate the art for what it is, and read the story and appreciate it as well on its own, there's no denying that the experience of reading a text that is complemented by the images enhances the appreciation for both mediums. The images communicate with the story and the story gives the context to the images. The relationship between the word and the image is crucial to the understanding of the illustration and to the actual book. For illustration work in that period, it can be harder to find the artist compared to more classic forms of art, let's say paintings or sculptures, because a lot of them were not very popular, but their work still is a really important and underappreciated part of art history. Nonetheless, if you dig and research a bit, it can still be possible to find some of the names and images. The later part of the 19th century is easier to research since it's the era that's truly known as the golden age of illustration. 
That era produced some of the really more well-known illustrators of the time, such as Kay Nielsen and Arthur Rackham, just to name a few of them. Now we can move on to the actual illustration of the Gothic novels and get to talk about them a bit more deeply. Even when comparing several illustrations of the same novel in different editions, it's possible to notice that these illustrations really do have a main single purpose of storytelling. Their goal is to further the narrative of the book and make you feel more engrossed in the story. The compositions of the images really do center the character and use a lot of contrast between light and shadow. In the illustrations of the second edition of the book Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, you can see that the use of crosshatch techniques as well as the emphasis on composition and the placements of lights and shadows truly do wonder in creating a very specific atmosphere. These illustrations really capture that gothic feelings, with the mysteries that hide behind the shadows. The last thing I'm going to talk about, in the context of the 19th century and gothic stories, will be the penny dreadfuls. If you don't know what penny dreadfuls are, basically they were cheaply produced booklets that cost only a penny, hence the name, with stories that were designed to give you chills and to shock you. Whether it was horror stories, ghost stories, or murder mysteries, it was very much a popular literature, with things inside that would shock some sensibilities, we might say. Even though the concept started in the 1830s, it's really toward the end of the 19th century that the popularity of the Penny Dreadful really jumped up. In my opinion, the Penny Dreadful is the one media that bridges the printing culture of the 19th century to the one that appears in the beginning of the 20th century. In the first part of this episode, I presented the beginnings of gothic romance as a literary genre and talked a lot about the illustrations that were part of that movement, from the Castle of Otranto in 1764 all the way to Dracula's first release in 1897, gothic romance and gothic horror grew exponentially and some of the books of this genre are now staples of our popular culture. But now, we're in the 20th century and gothic romance literature and all the visual aesthetics of it are going to be very different from what it used to be. Welcome to gothic romance once again. To understand the second wave of gothic romance, or so we can call it like that, we have to understand the book industry of that era, specifically in the first half of the 20th century. So the growth of the paperback industry during the beginning of the century will usher a new era of book publishing and book selling. Books, especially cheap paperbacks and mass market books, were now selling really well and very easily and people were buying a lot of them. I was talking about Penny Dreadfuls and how they were basically a cheap and mass produced type of medium. The paperback is thus the logical continuation of it, 
with its cheap cost of production, its cheap cost to the clients, and the way it was easy to print them quickly and efficiently, and then sell them very quickly and efficiently as well. The mindset of the early 20th century in terms of book publishing was to sell books in places where people would buy them. So not only in bookstores, but in drugstores and grocery stores as to target the general public. The books that were then published and marketed were easy books to sell, like romance, noir, gothic romance, murder mysteries, genre books that could easily be very formulaic and also very easy to write quickly and publish very quickly as well. More than good books, publishers really wanted books that sold well. And with this new marketing method, well, it works. <laughs> with this, the age of pulp fiction has started. Of course, I'm going to focus here on gothic romance that was popular during those times, which is often considered as the second wave of gothic romance. Those covers are the ones that come to mind when we think about gothic romance especially the ones from the 1940s to the 1970s. The names of the artists of these book covers are sometimes known, but more often than not, it is very difficult to find who the artists were. This is one of the things that I find really sad, just how dismissive of this type of artist the field of art history is. And this is a conversation for another day, but I find it important to shed light on those less known parts of visual art history. During that era, book covers were really a way to tell people what they were going to get when they picked up the book. They had a very unique visual identity. That was a bit standardized in some way. They wanted to create interesting and enticing book covers so that people knew what they were getting. It wasn't about the most unique and mysterious cover, but it was more about effectively communicating with the buyer slash reader. I'm not going to go on a rant about this, but I feel like lately it's very hard to find a book cover that effectively communicates what it is to the reader. For example, you had the romance book covers with a woman being held in the buff, strong arms of a handsome man with strategically ripped clothes, or the noirs and mysteries in which we can also see a very common visual identity. Lots of star shadows and people in trench coats with guns lurking in the dark. And of course, gothic romance. With a woman with great hair running away from a dark mansion. I just really want to highlight how strong the visual identity is. There's visual conventions and expectations that really are in place for each genre. I just want to mention here that most of the authors of the mid-20th century wave of gothic romance were mostly female authors, which I think has a double effect, first of all being a genre mostly written by women and also for mostly female audience. It made it so that people really didn't attribute it any value of any sort, but also on the flip side. It gave those women financial independence that some of them might not have acquired otherwise. This is during that era that the visual codes that now characterize what we think of as gothic romance really get set in stone. The young lady wearing a long nightgown fleeing a dark mansion. She is chased by something that we cannot see. 
the house stands tall behind her. Her hair is flowing through the winds. We can see that the colors that are often used are deep jewel tones. Emerald greens, deep purples, blues. Those book covers often use one central color for the whole entire composition. The contrast between light and shadow is also very much used as a way to showcase the contrast between the poor heroine and the dark menacing environment she's in. A situation that feels so desperate and that she's hopelessly trying to escape. But unlike the ink illustration from the 19th century, that contrast is communicated using vibrant colors instead of just black and white. So the background would be a deep blue and the heroine would be dressed in a pale pink, for example. And she would be set against the looming background with the house in the distance, with maybe one light open or a cliff and very menacing clouds in the sky, also very dangerous. The movement and flowiness of the garments and the hair are also very much a game of contrast against the unyielding solidness of the house that's in the background. I did say it was very difficult to find the names of the artists, but I still want to showcase this one illustrator, Harry Barton, who was a very prolific illustrator of the period, and illustrated books of all sorts, from romance to mystery novels, and of course, gothic romance. In all of his work in the realm of gothic romance book covers, he really did respect all of the visual conventions that we expect of this genre. In my opinion, even if you create art within a certain set of visual expectations and tropes, it still doesn't mean that you cannot create something that can be very visually fresh and innovating and compelling. The colors Barton uses are very deep, and the visible brush shirts really do add a depth to the whole image that wouldn't be there otherwise. Those gothic romance book covers were all very formulaic, as the books also often were, but it doesn't mean that there's not also something very charming and appealing to them. The gothic heroine will always be so very compelling to me, with her nightgown and dark castles, uncovering dark secrets and falling in love with dangerous men, and surviving in the end, somehow. And there's something deeply beautiful and magical to this for me. Before we go, I put a bunch of relevant resources on today's subject in the show notes if you want to maybe further your knowledge on the subject. As always, the relevant images will also be on our social platform at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash And I will take this opportunity to take my wonderful patrons. So thank you to Mei Li, Bilia Sala, as well as John Lee and Rian Capecci for supporting this podcast. It means a lot to me. Today's recommendation of the day is romanceinthedotic.com, which is a group dedicated to gothic and horror and gothic romance, and they offer free classes and, and book clubs and a lot of fun things if you, if you love gothic and gothic romance. I really highly, highly recommend them. On this, my very dear listeners, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And hopefully I will see you again very soon. Mm-hmm.